So you've been on this road trip, right? Are we there yet? No. Well, why not? Because. Are we there yet? No. Well, are we close? No. (laughs) Are we there yet? What do you think? (laughs) Well, I mean, when are we going to get there? Because when are we going to get there? We're we're close. Okay, we're just... We're closer than we were when you asked two seconds ago. Just chill. You've been in this car, whether you were the one in the back seat nagging the driver or you were the driver, utterly dumbfounded at the never-ending, joy-sucking, just unnecessary... uh, Can you tell which one I've been recently? Um, You've been in this car, and if you have not been in this car, then you've figured out a way to avoid life's most annoying situation, and you are better than the rest of us. But for the rest of us, this is an unfortunate reality of road trips, especially in summer. But I think it actually shows us something about our human nature. We find joy in getting there, but we struggle to find joy in the process, in the journey. In fact, there's a reason for this. We believe that once we make it, once we attain our goal, once we reach our destination, we will find lasting happiness. Like, if we think like that, it's something actually called a rival fallacy, and it's an illusion. And it's an illusion because what psychology experts are finding is that the more we worry about attaining our destination, the less happy we are over time. The more you think things like, I'm j- I'll be happy when I lose these last 10 pounds. Like, or I'll be happy when I finally get a spouse. I'll find joy after graduation. I'll find joy when I get that, that job that I want. When we focus on that, then we're actually less happy and less joy-filled for longer periods of time. I'm guilty of this. My wife and I, when we were married, her parents were about to retire. And when they retired, they gifted us for free their 2003 Toyota Camry. Great car. This was 2013. It was only 10 years old. But when we got it, we quickly realized that there were some issues with it. For example, when you rolled the driver's side window all the way down, it would not go back up. So you can picture me in Chick-fil-A, just, dry, just a little bit down, just enough to get my waffle fries into the car, roll it back up before it gets stuck. And I find myself driving down Lehigh Street and seeing all these car dealerships and thinking, man, wouldn't it be fantastic to have one of those cars? I think I would finally like, find joy in driving if I had a brand new car. And I convinced my wife, and we we bought this used, new-to-us car, and it is shiny, and it it drives smoothly, it has a window that goes down and up. It's fantastic. And I finally found, when I got what I wanted, that joy, that lasting joy. Well, less than two months into it, we got in not one, but two accidents. (sighs) Joy didn't last. Not at all. I felt like I would be more satisfied if I had a new car, and I wasn't satisfied with literally the free car that we had right in front of us. What about you? Do you find that your joy is tied to seeing what you want actually happen? Or is your 
happiness tied to your circumstances and how you think your life should be. How do we change that? How do we experience true and lasting joy that's not tied to our circumstances, not tied to the things going on around us? This summer, we've been looking at real stories of real people from the Old Testament. And as we get to know their, their stories, we're seeing characteristics of things that we sh actually should be exhibiting as followers of Christ. We've seen how Nehemiah was hungry for more of God. We've seen how uh, Jacob was humble with his brother Esau. We saw how Isaiah, as he was confronted with the awesomeness of God, how he exhibited true humility. And these are characteristics that God wants to grow in us. So today, if you have a Bible, if you have a phone with a Bible app, pull that out. We're going to be looking in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 21. Here we find a woman named Sarah. She has a husband named Jacob, I mean named Abraham. And as we look at her story, I hope she helps us answer this question. How can we find joy that's not attached to our circumstances? And what is true and lasting joy really like? But we, before we pick up her story in Genesis chapter 21, we need to go way back to where her story begins. And I'm going to paint a picture for us of her story because I think that you'll find hope in her story. You know, there's probably a time in your life that you haven't been joyful. There's probably at least one moment where you did not experience true and utter happiness. I think as we discover Sarah's journey, we'll find hope. Because Sarah and her husband, Abraham, were so skeptical, so bitter, that they literally laughed at God. Check this out. We get introduced to Sarah in Genesis chapter 12. It is the very first time we get to know her and her family, and right away, God shows up to Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham, I am going to give you kids, I'm going to give you a family, and your family, your descendants, everybody will be blessed, and everybody in this world will be blessed through you. God literally says, All people on earth will be blessed through you, and the country I lead you to will be your descendants' country for years to come. This was huge. Imagine God showing up in your life right now and saying, hey, I have this vision for you. I have this promise for you, something that is amazing beyond your wildest dreams. I bet that this brought joy to both Sarah and Abraham. Like, how would it not? This is amazing, an amazing promise of a huge and important family who wouldn't be joyful about that, right? But there was one thing that they could not ignore. Sarah and Abraham had no kids. In fact, Sarah was past the age of childbearing. She was almost 90 years old. And then God is saying to them, hey, you're going to have a, good, a great big family with many descendants? How? Wait, but we can't have kids. What? So instead of waiting to see if God would actually come through on his promise, Sarah takes things into her own hands. Check this out. Sarah said to Abraham, hey, Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Okay, great. Go, Abraham, sleep with my servant so that I may have a family through her. <laughs> Literally saying like, hey, I know what God promised. I know what he said. I, you know, it's a great promise. How could I ever forget that? It's, it's, it's huge. But seriously, 
I can't have kids. This hasn't happened for me yet. It's not going to happen for me now. I've got to take control. Abraham, I've got, this, I've got something for you. Go have sex with my servant. Side note, if you have, don't read the Bible because you think it's boring and stale, open it up sometime. <laughs> it is fantastic. Um, and you'd expect Abraham to be like, Sarah, Sarah, it's okay, sweetheart. Let's just wait. Let's just wait and see what God does. Nope. His response? Yes, dear. And when this situation goes down and the servant does become pregnant and there is a child who's born, Sarah gets what she wants in her own time. But when it happens, everything goes south. Everyone's mad at each other. Everyone hates each other. There is no joy. Big shock. And for uh, fast forward, and Sarah still doesn't have a baby. The promise remains, but there's nothing to show for it. There's nothing that has happened. So God said to Abraham again. He tells Abraham, hey, you will have a great family. You will. And I didn't tell you this last time, but I feel like I need to. Your wife, Sarah, will be the one who has a child. She will have a son. She will be a mother. And you'd expect Abraham to be like, oh, really? Oh, great. I'm so excited. You, thank you for sharing that with me. Thanks, God. We're good. No, not at all. Abraham fell on his face laughing, claiming that what God had promised is impossible. He demonstrated his lack of faith in God right in front of God, and God replied, knowing that he needed to spell things out a little bit more clearly for Abraham, saying, Sarah will have a son. In fact, his name will be Isaac. He will be born by this time next year. God told Abraham this promise for a third time, and God is a genius in this. He's spelling out more things. He knows Abraham needs to have more facts, but each time he shares it and gets more and more, gives more and more detail, you would expect Abraham to be okay with it. Like, he gave the name Isaac to this baby. When a baby has a name, isn't it more real? Shouldn't Abraham be like, okay, God, thank you. I have the details. I've got the timeline. This time next year, we'll be prepared for that. We're going to start getting diapers. Everything's good. But wait, there's more. God sends three messengers to speak to Abraham and Sarah. And the messengers say, Sarah will have a son. He will be born by this time next year. How many times do we need to hear God's voice? How many times does he need to say something before we actually believe it? They've been told four times that God will come through. And yet Sarah's response to this, in this time, was laughter. And I don't think it was a joy-filled laughter. I think it was a, a mocking laughter. A, I'm worn out, and my husband is old. This doesn't make sense kind of laughter. One of the messengers here hears her laugh, calls her out on it, and she lies to his face, probably out of shame, guilt, fear. And at this point, I'm confused. Maybe you're confused. I thought we were talking about joy today, right? Even though Sarah had the promise of God, she didn't believe the promise of God because she hadn't seen anything happen in her life. She let her circumstances of being old, and, being, and not being able to have children dictate how she felt and how she responded to God. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 21. 
verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bible open, go ahead and read with me. Follow along with me. Now the Lord said to Sarah, as he, so the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Sarah gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When, Isaac, when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Did you catch that? Did you, did you see? Did you see? Let me point this out to you one more time. As he had said, what he had promised, Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham at the very time God had promised. The son Sarah bore, his son Isaac. Isaac was born to him. It's as if the text and the author is screaming, Hey, did you see it? Did you see what just happened? God came through as he said he would, when he said he would, in the way that he said he would. And it not only happened, it happened exactly the right way. Did you see that? Did you notice it? God came through on his promise. So let's see how Sarah responds. Maybe hopefully, hopefully it's a little bit better than before. Genesis 26, 6 and 7 says this. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Sarah laughed. And I don't think it was just a laugh either. I don't think it was a, my coworker just said a joke that wasn't really funny, but I'm trying to maintain this working relationship here and I'm gonna laugh just to make him feel better, it wasn't that kind of laugh. And it wasn't even a, I just watched cat fails on YouTube kind of laugh, even those, those, those are hilarious, but it wasn't that kind of laugh either. I think this was a gut-turning, tear-inducing, joy-filled laughter. And you can't blame her, right? She's 90 years old. 90-year-olds are not supposed to have newborn children. 90-year-old women are supposed to have newborn great-grandchildren, not kids of their own. So she laughed. She experienced from God what she had been trying to make happen on her own her entire life. She finally got what God was talking about. She, she received what God had promised from the very beginning, and her response was joy. And what I love about her journey is that joy was not her initial response. When being told that a 90-year-old woman would be, giving, would be giving birth to a son. Do you remember? So she initially tried to control the situation by taking things into her own hands. Then she and Abraham laughed in God's face, probably out of just disbelief and maybe even a little bit of fear. And then she lied to God's messenger because she was afraid of what God would do. She lived her first 90 years letting her circumstances and situations determine her joy, probably in a constant state of disbelief and frustration that, that God had kept her from having a child. 
And yet, here she is now, witnessing the fulfillment of God's promise and God's timing. And her response is joy, and her joy just continued to grow. Now, we said the word joy a lot here. And joy, I think we need to talk about joy for a second because it's something that we sing about at Christmas. We see it on signs that we can buy at Hobby Lobby. And it's found 200, about 220 times throughout our entire Bible. We need to talk about what joy actually means. When you think about that word, joy, what do you think of? Me, I think of smiley faces and unicorns, right? So I think of the uh, emoji that you can text to people, the laughing so hard I'm crying face, even though I don't remember the last time I laughed so hard I cried. But I don't think joy is happiness. In fact, joy is not even a choice. It's not even a feeling. I want to define joy in this way. Joy is being content with God and his purposes. Joy is being content with God and his purposes. It is a choice. It's a choice to believe God at his word. It's knowing where your hope comes from. It's finding rest and peace in God. It's letting out a breath and deciding that no matter what happens, and no matter what situation you face, God is with you. And I know that this is difficult. I know what you might be thinking. But my life sucks. You don't understand. You don't get what's going on in my life right now. You just don't, it, it's, it's horrible. I know. I, you're right, I might not know exactly what you're going through. And I'm so sorry for what you might be going through. In fact, there is so much brokenness in this world that it is so far outside of God's original design that it sometimes does feel hopeless. I'm not downplaying that at all. But we need to remember the definition. Joy is not a feeling. It's in spite of feelings. It's in the middle of a situation that feels hopeless saying, yes, like Sarah, I don't understand, my circumstances are bad, but, but I choose to be content with God and his purposes. And no matter what happens, I will be satisfied with God. So we just covered a lot. Sarah, Joy, there's a lot going on here. So how do we move on? How do we here and now let God grow joy in us? How do we move away from happiness coming out of our circumstances to God actually growing joy? And I think there are three things. That if we put these three things into practice, I think it's actually going to let God grow joy in us. You know when you go to the eye doctor and they do that eye test with you? We all want perfect vision, right? We all want 20-20. We don't want those glasses. So, but when compared to God, our vision is far less than perfect. In fact, it's a completely different kind of vision. You see, compared to God, we have nearsighted vision. It's hard to see things clearly unless they're relatively close to us. When things are far away, we struggle to see things clearly. So when things happen around us or to us, it, it, and they're not, they don't go according to plan, we respond with frustration and anger. 
when a situation isn't what we want it to be, we take things into our own hands. So we need to refocus with God. What would it look like to be less nearsighted and more God-sighted? Here's what I mean by that. What would it look like to instead solely focusing on the here and now, the things happening around us in this moment, be more focused about what God is doing all around and through all of time? You see, we have a tendency to want to focus on the here and now. What is God doing here? What is God doing today? How can God make my life better right at this moment? And we focus so much on that that we ignore what God has done for thousands of years and what God will continue to do for thousands of years through our ancestors, through us, through our descendants. We are so attached to our circumstances, but God is so much bigger than our circumstances. So we need to take a step back to refocus with God and take in the bigger picture. And as we do that, I think it's going to become easier to not be jumbled by our circumstances because we see what God is doing and the bigger picture. So as we take that step back to refocus, it's also important to remember God's faithfulness. God did amazing things in the Old Testament. Uh, he delivered people from slavery. He brought people to a land that he had promised for them. He helped nations defeat their enemies. And many times when he did that, he would tell, hey, Israel, put together a monument. Nothing complicated, sometimes often just a pile of rocks. But I want you to do this because God, has, God knows that humans have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to forget how God has acted in our lives. Like, I literally don't know where I put my keys this morning uh, when I got here. Maybe that'll be a problem later today. But we have a tendency to not remember things. And I think God knows that. And he wants us to remember. I bet that every time Sarah looked at Isaac, she was filled with joy as she remembered what God, had did, what God did for her. A constant reminder that God came through on his promise. God show up, showed up. He was faithful. So remember God's faithfulness. How has God been faithful in your life? How has he changed you? How has he grown you over the years? Because I know that when we remember these things, when we focus on these things, we're more likely to see God's faithfulness in our lives. We're more likely to see that bigger picture, and that will grow joy. Maybe you can't remember the last time God did something in your life, and that's okay. Look to people around you. How is God growing joy in other people? Because joy is contagious. So I can't help, but when I hear a story of life transformation, I can't help but grow joy in me. Because joy is contagious. I mean, it's been 4,000 years since Sarah had Isaac. And because of her joy, we're still talking about it today. Joy is contagious. Surround, surround yourself with people who've experienced God. And as you tap into their joy, God will grow joy in you. And finally, as we remember God's faithfulness, we can rest in God's promise. Sometimes like Sarah, we feel like God is keeping something good from us. Keeping us from having a child, keeping us from a promotion, keeping some kind of blessing away from us. But true joy is knowing that God has given us exactly what we need. And we can rest in knowing that God is with us, he's for us, and he loves us. 
So when's the last time that you rested? You took a breath. You found peace in God's promise. A promise that God is writing a story, and the story that he's writing in your life is better than any story we can write on our own. And let me tell you, resting in God is hard to do because it it acknowledges that we're not in control. And God is in control. And that's tough. But resting in God's promise gets gets easier the more we refocus with God and remember God's faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So as you continue to read chapter 21, and I would encourage you to do so because it's good stuff, you'll find that Sarah's next step is a misstep. She was given another opportunity to choose joy, and she failed. She's on a journey. We're on a journey. Our joy will never be perfect in this life. We are not there yet. But at the same time, we are there. We can experience the lasting joy that God has for us. Here's how. God made a promise to Abraham, a promise that Isaac would be born, and through his family, he would establish a great nation. And it happened. God came through on his promise when Isaac was born, and it produced joy in his family and in everybody who heard about it. In the same way, God made a promise to us, to you and to me, that he would send a Messiah, a rescuer, God in flesh, to be born. And this person, Jesus, would provide a way for everlasting life. And it happened. God came through on his promise when Jesus was born. And we see in Luke chapter 2, when it talks about the birth of Jesus, that it was good news of great joy for all people. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you trust him as the promised rescuer who has taken away the sin of the world, then you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. Which means you can experience true and lasting joy now. If you're in need of joy today, you can find it. It's found in the person of Jesus. Joy is found as you refocus to see just how awesome awesome it is that God sent his son to die for you because he loves you. And that even though Sarah failed, God still came through. And even though we fail, God is still with you, he still loves you, and you can trust him. And as we remember these things, as we surround ourselves with people, as we lean into what God has for us, our joy will grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of him, we can have life. Today, we ask that you would, here and now, help us to experience your joy. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Help us to refocus with you, to remember what you've done, and to rest in the promise of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.